I think the approach for the, the high schooler senior, the approach for the freshman in college is to number one ask of what excites me enough to make me feel like when I do the work, I'm energized and I'm not drained. Um, for me, that ended up being social impact space. I ended up loving nonprofits. I ended up loving working with figuring out business models and, and kind of tweaking with systems. And that's not tangibly medicine, but there are very easy ways within those experiences where you can discover, hey, do I really, number one, care about patient care? Number two, do I see myself contributing to medicine in a unique way? Not that I have to be different from everyone else, but that my own unique way is actually true to myself. And then can I figure out a way that my interests outside of medicine can complement who I want to be as a doctor? Welcome everybody to I Wish They Taught That in School. I'm your host, Mike Mulick. I asked people what they wish they were taught in school, and this is what they said. What's up, man? Perfect. Um, doing, well, doing well, doctor. How are you? Thank I'm you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, I will say. Yeah. It's, been, uh, it's something we've been trying to get on the books for a while, so I appreciate it. Yeah, well, the end of the semester, I mean, the semester was crazy for me, as I, I'm sure it was Yeah. for you. That's a big... Uh, did you wait? Did you just graduate or? No, no. So I graduated last year. Um, so the semester itself was like not really any more semester. Uh, oh, that's right. Okay. But uh, yeah, still like kind of the end of the year. It's an uh, it's an interesting, I guess, one year timeline since I, uh, me graduating, kind of having a hiatus from school before I jump right back into it. So yeah, so no, I think that's, I mean, one of the biggest questions I get is, about a gap year but that was like that's a gap year well spent i think oh yeah yeah so well congratulations on well i appreciate all it. the 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 variety i guess we should probably mention i mean we may have some pre-med students listening to this but um what was i i, I think probably most most notable were some of the the top schools that you did get into for medical school which was mm -hmm. harvard stanford and then a couple there was a couple other Columbia. yeah there was there was a couple there was a couple it was um there was harvard there was stanford there was yale um there was ucla with the full ride wash u st louis to the full ride cornell duke so yeah uh, a good amount i'm definitely quite fortunate for how the process has gone it's been it's a it's a pretty long one it kind of tests you uh just from a i guess from a length level um, more than anything. Um, but eventually I think once you try to, when you really get into the process and once you get past, okay, I just want to get into med school and you start really thinking about, okay, what really fits me? What is the best financial outcome? What are we looking at from a quality of life perspective? I think the whole game shifts when you get on the back end of it and you start really thinking about envisioning your life at these places. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. it seems I can even say from like a year ago right now, I'm helping a number of my peers, who are applying in this upcoming cycle and just kind of the mental headspace that everyone's in of just just like applying for everything because it's so competitive it's so difficult um to now coming to kind of where i am where i'm really starting to envision the actual medicine that it's going to be that's going to be uh where the rubber meets the road it's it's a very full circle moment yeah i think it's um well for there's going to be a lot of there's a lot of people out there and myself included where getting in was a real struggle so okay. for me it was like three three tries and yeah. um but you know i would probably say like one of the 
top questions people would have would be like, how did you, you know, what, how did you do that? I mean, some people may be just trying to like reverse engineer, take your advice and reverse engineer it. But what do you think, um, what would, what would be something that you would want to impart to people who, you know, because you did, you did, uh, it was a pretty, um, pretty amazing to, you know, when so many other really good applicants, um, you know, have, have a tough time and it is so competitive. Yeah. Um, so what do you think made the difference? Yeah, that's a, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I feel like, I feel like the approach towards the application really depends on kind of the individual and what they're interested in. I think the, the, let me actually go towards what I wouldn't recommend first. And I think that'll push the discussion a little bit better. Oh yeah. Yeah. You Uh, had, um, I, I was actually, I was excited. I think I had asked you, you know, like what, (laughs) what would be, what, like what advice would you recommend ignoring? Like, what do you ignore? Like what, what should, what should pre-med people like not do? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, the first and foremost thing to ignore is the concept of a laundry list. Uh, meaning that as a pre-med, you do X, Y, and Z. And it sounds kind of counterintuitive. Um, and it also sounds a little bit idealistic, but I think the reason that you end up getting students who feel like they're caught in the rat race of being pre-med, where you have to do shadowing, you have to do research in a bio, like a wet lab setting, you have to show uh, leadership in your local healthcare organization on campus, et cetera, is because it feels like that is kind of the formula to get in. Um, yeah. The more and more you actually get into the application process and you speak to people, you see the other people who are in your interview rooms, you talk to individuals once you get in, you realize that everyone's path who is actually getting in is so vastly different. You have, um, and I think this is kind of reverse engineering it back to the application perspective is to know actually who got in. So I can remember at some of my second looks, whether, which is where you go back and visit the school after you get in, whether it's Harvard, whether it's uh, Stanford, whether it's UCLA, et cetera. And you're speaking to the kids, there's, there's, uh, there's former service members. There's like army military. There are, uh, individuals who spent three years doing investment banking. There's people who are musicians. And I think the common thread that you see amongst everyone, at least even at the, the especially top schools is that you get, you get individuals who are very obviously care about something. It doesn't necessarily have to even be the most tangibly medically oriented, but they very obviously care about something. They've, they've gone headfirst into it. And in that process, they've discovered the lens by which healthcare actually matters to them. And I think that's much more of a self-reflection and personal process that needs to be done because a lot, I've spoken to a lot of like peers or mentees, et cetera, throughout the process where they kind of just go in through to it saying, okay, what are the laundry list items I need? As yeah. opposed to saying, what do I really care about? And if that care about is bartending, if that's your care is to be uh, an amazing English major and to write screenplays and screen novels, et cetera, I think what makes a doctor in the end is your ability to connect with patients. Um, and that ability to connect with patients needs to be seen and needs to be discovered by you doing stuff that regular people do. Um, yeah. so I think my number one advice for the application process is at least like when you're a freshman in college or your high school going into college or sophomore in college. I mean, keep in mind, I only made the decision to even go pre-med at the end of my freshman year. Um, okay. So that was, so not even until, not even until, um, college yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. Not even until college. I actually came into college the most opposed to medicine of all the professional fields. Cause that was what I was getting pushed into. 
it was there was pressure around it and being a teenager being a is that because you're is that because you're are your parents physicians uh no so i have no physicians in the family i have oh that's right okay yeah so i have all all of my relatives the closest i have is like research but it's that's like distant relatives everyone is tech everyone is on the sales side like right. i have physicians in the family so there wasn't this like app pressure from that end it was just that oh actually doing doing being a physician is different um, but circling back to that point that I was saying earlier, which is wherein I think the approach for the, the high school or senior, the approach for the freshman in college is to number one, ask of what excites me enough to make me feel like when I do the work, I'm energized and I'm not drained. Um, for me, that ended up being social impact space. I ended up loving nonprofits. I ended up loving working with figuring out business models and, and kind of tweaking with systems. And that's not tangibly medicine. But there are very easy ways within those experiences where you can discover, hey, do I really, number one, care about patient care? Number two, do I see myself contributing to medicine in a unique way? Not that I have to be different from everyone else, but that my own unique way is actually true to myself. And then can I figure out a way that my interests outside of medicine can complement who I want to be as a doctor? Do you call it, you call that the social impact space? Yeah, I call it the social impact space. That was for me personally, social impact space, meaning nonprofits, NGOs, corporate social responsibility groups for yeah. corporations, uh, social enterprises, which are effectively revenue producing nonprofits. A lot of that um, ecosystem, especially in and around uh, the University of Southern California and Los Angeles as, as an urban center was something I got really invested in. Right. So that's did that. Um, so this came about. So I guess we should tell the listener like you yeah. did you and some of your colleagues while you were in college started a nonprofit. yeah Act. yeah exactly so i think and so tying kind of the application side to a little bit more of my personal background um i think for me my path to medicine itself was discovering that in a lot of these different lenses and of activities that i really chose to get invested in there were certain parts and elements of it that seemingly correlated to the patient experience that really connected to who I was. Um, but getting to that point that you just made, um, I came into undergrad really excited about law. I came in excited about consulting. I came excited about all these different ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I joined a social impact consulting groups thinking that, okay, it's a way for me to understand business, understand strategy, but also to focus on what I feel is potentially tangible impact or feeling at least personally satisfied that I'm doing something to quote unquote better the world. Um, and after having that experience and really seeing the, the nuts and bolts of what makes a nonprofit work, how is it truly a business? How is it not, not truly the most for-profit organization? And then kind of seeing the inequities built in throughout Los Angeles. Um, I had an idea at the end of my freshman year, worked on it slowly, slowly, iteratively throughout my sophomore year, eventually uh, uh, starting a nonprofit um, it's called Cathartic. It runs out of Los Angeles um, and it's still running today. Um, I have just stepped out as like the official CEO capacity uh, before I head into med school, but I'm still on the board there. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get into it a little bit more. Uh, but Cathartic does a lot of work to focus on sort of the, the health and hygiene resource access side of preventative health, uh, wherein a lot of the unhoused individuals and under-resourced urban populations don't have access to the products um, that you and I use on an everyday basis and we don't even think about it in terms of their health benefits. So we focus on reallocating those products from vendors in areas where they're in high in supply towards those populations who don't have it. 
Um, and I'm sure we can dive more into it. There's, there's a lot of nuance there. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, it did, do you think that that for someone who wanted to do something like that, does it have to start very, very, very small with just kind of like this, um, tangible grassroots level? Like, I'm just going to first, not going to try to think that this is going to be something big, but just see if I can connect someone who needs something to, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, I think there's, there's a couple interesting things when you're thinking about being a founder. I think the the number one advice that I ended up getting from true entrepreneurs and true founders who said, okay, I want to go out there and really get something to happen is if you can find a way to not have to do it on your own, do it that Fine. way. Yeah. If you can find a way to get what you're interested in done, not on your own. So build off the backs of already what exists, uh -huh. do it that way. Um, in other words, if there's an organization that already kind of does similarly to what you do, but there's a slight tweak or there's a program you want to work on within the organization, find that organization and do it because operating off of existing foundations is the best way to create real impact. Mm. Um, I think a lot of students, a lot of young people, we are interested in the name side of being a founder of the saying, oh, I'm the CEO, I am the startup, whatever. Um, but if we really grind it down and say, Hey, what are we really doing? Why are we doing this? If this is truly for impact, um, you got to think about all the different initial barriers to entry that exist with really being a founder with saying, okay, I have to build my own network. I have to build a brand. I have to build a cohesive business model. I have to get mentors. I have to find funders, which is incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, and I think those are all things that we don't consider when thinking about looking, okay, do I, am I trying to focus on helping people? Or am I focused on the, the excitement of the business side? And I think for me personally, I did so much of that groundwork for a whole year plus to see, okay, where does my idea uh, that eventually became cathartic really fit into other organizations? And it didn't fully fit in anywhere. And it didn't feel like the, the infrastructure that existed, at least from what I saw around me, was really adept to me building the kind of systems and the impact that I wanted to actually see. Um, therefore it kind of made it a little bit easier for me to say, okay, I'm going to start something on my own. But despite that, even the, the fact that cathartics, it's own nonprofit, it's its own social enterprise. Um, the whole business model is predicated on working on partnerships, um, yeah. without our partners, we're nothing where we yeah. don't, we don't produce the products ourselves. We don't produce the health and hygiene supplies. We don't form all the community relationships on our own because we have local community distributors. It's in the end, cathartic itself is a middleman. We're a matchmaker. We're, yeah. um, we're an e-harmony, a dating site of sorts, um, really built on the backs of other organizations. So I think my general advice is kind of what you said, which is if you're focused really on impact, if you really care about the problem and you know, it's not just a problem that you identified, it's a problem that the community identifies. It's a problem the community expresses. Then try to solve that problem itself in the micro forms and actually see if it's viable um, because solving the actual problem. And then if you feel emotionally attached to it is what's going to get you to actually do something that can be scalable. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's good advice. Do you think that you, um, is this idea of if you, if something can be done and like, if, if you can find someone or something that's already doing what you want to do, use that thing. Is that just sort of like a business fundamental or did you get that from your, um, social impact consulting group? I feel both. I feel like the business fundamental side of it is is pretty concrete. Um, 
And I think that it, it works simply. I mean, if, if you really zoom out and we think about not even just business, but you think about any initiative that humanity come collect comes collectively together, whether it's farming, whether it's uh, whether it's markets and, and like selling and vendors and distribution and trade, it, every single kind of effective, prosperous system works off the back of another system. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, that just the ethos behind the fact that collaboration inherently breeds larger impact because you get more people involved um, is what relates to this point. Uh, and I think that approach puts you in a position not only of humility, but also puts you in a position to say, hey, I want to work with existing systems because as a 22-year-old, 21, I was 20 at the time, but a 22-year-old, 21-year-old young entrepreneur, I know I'm not gonna reinvent the society tomorrow, nor am I gonna reinvent the society in a year or two years. I need to take this small bit and go after it yeah. um, and, and have that kind of foresight to be like, look, I'm gonna be realistic as well as idealistic at the same time. And we definitely don't want um, whoever might be listening to this. We definitely won't don't want to think that you that you they would have to try to start a nonprofit. I mean, that's just not a absolutely. It's not for everybody, and that's that's hard work. It's really got to be like you said. I think something that you're really care about. But a lot of a lot of students do ask me for advice about what to do, and a lot of times they're taking gap years. Yeah. Usually their ideas are okay. I'll be a scribe. Um, I mean, that's like one of the most common things. Like I'll, I'll be a scribe and I'll be living here and that way it can be, and there's nothing wrong. I think there's nothing wrong with that. If it puts you in touch with getting you into that, um, environment, like if you want to be in the ER and see what that's all about. But I would, I would probably say like, definitely don't go do that. If you, if you're just doing it because you think that's what they want to see. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, so I, I, I think that there, there might be a smaller way to, there might be a smaller way to accomplish something, right? Like maybe not starting a business, but it's like, if you can see a problem, a local problem, and you can try to solve that problem. Exactly. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people from what I've seen, don't, they may not take those types of projects on because they're, they're very self it's like, it kind of requires like sort of this self initiative. A lot of people would rather just, okay, this is, here's an existing internship. I just joined that. Yeah. But I think what's really what I, I talked to one of the guys I work with who's a neurosurgeon at CHLA. He's, he's, he's just like, okay, research is, you don't need research by the way, but research is one way to get the attention of a school, but a standout item, like going to um, Peace Corps. That's another yeah. one of the surgeons I work with. He's like Peace Corps. That's why he got into Harvard is because yeah. he did Peace Corps for two years. And that's like, that's something that a lot of people just don't want to do that, yeah. but it, it made him stand apart. Yeah. So, and, so tell, well, tell, yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just saying that the point that you made right there is, is really critical, which is, I think students get caught up in, in, in two, two lenses. There's two sides of it. Number one, I want to be a unique, different student who can showcase that I'm, I'm, I'm worth it almost for these medical schools to take a flyer on me. Like I want to be a gem and um, the schools like the, the gem collectors, so to speak, the Harvards, the Stanfords, the Hopkins, they're going to look at me and think I'm unique. That's one camp. And then you have the other side where it's like, okay, but I also want to do what seems to be not necessarily easy, but seems to be like the core activities. And I don't think there's a right or wrong to it. 
Um, I do think the rationale and the mindset that you approach all of these things in is important. Like, number one, I, I never want to get, I don't want any of the listeners or any of the students who are potentially listening to get confused. Like, you need to do clinical hours. You have to. And, but that's not from a perspective that you need to tally up the 300 clinical hours in the application. You need to ask yourself whether you actually want to do this. Like medicine is not easy. Like I don't think any single doctor who's out there is going to tell you it's easy. The training is tougher than that. I even know that I imagine, and I know I'm speaking to a doctor who's been through all of it, but I think the, the mental framing of, okay, getting up at 5am when you have a school day, you have class at 11, but I'm going to volunteer from six to 10. It's exhausting. But if that excites you, if you're thrilled about patient interactions, if you see yourself growing in those spaces you're reframing it mentally entirely away from okay i just have to get x done to show that i'm clinically interested as opposed to thinking of it as showing a college that i'm clinically interested it's showing yourself whether you're actually interested in this space yeah perfectly fine to not be there are so many places outside where i think physicians can be incredibly good consultants it can be incredibly good engineers it can be incredibly good lawyers or politicians or teachers, professors, like you don't have to be a doctor, but in order to want to be a doctor, you need to discover for yourself if that's really for you. Um, and I think meant for me, at least reframing the long hours or, or all the work that I did to really ask myself, Hey, I'm following a process of self-discovery. I'm not following a process of what someone somewhere abstractly said I had to do. Absolutely. That's good advice is be on the and it's like I'm still on the process of self-discovery I'm always doing something <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm writing a book and I got a podcast and I'm working part-time so yeah. well I tell when I have students come shadow me what I tell them is I say I want you to like don't focus don't spend your whole time focusing like on the minutia of what we do we're taking care of kids having heart surgery transplant hypoplastic left heart like it's the you can really get lost in the details and i'm like okay do that for a little bit but also look around and see you're going to meet like 10 different doctors today do they look happy um would you like do you think that they look happy like are they do they seem excited to do what it is that they do what about the environment like look at the look at the high ceilings and the and just kind of like look at the dynamic place of the hospital and sort of take it all in is this the kind of environment that you would want to be in and so um and that's usually what I so I, and I just say you're like that's what shadowing is so great is shadowing is you don't get paid for it but you get a chance to just see you, you get to meet people and you're like do I want to be like them yeah and that's so I, I think it's it's really important to just like make because if you if you if you're shadow it's also probably a good idea to shadow a couple people because if you shadow someone who's just like super happy or you shadow someone who's like super negative it's like you're you're just not seeing the whole oh, the whole yeah. thing you may want to like you know don't be turned off because if from any one specialty just because you meet someone who's not into it for sure for sure and i think that's the mantra to continue all the way through the same way you're saying it which is i mean at every stage of the career that I I hope to potentially carry, there's going to have to be self-reflection. There's going to have to be a point where I say, am I doing the justice to myself and to my patients and to my family? Because at different stages, we all have different obligations. I think at, at the student level, the obligation that we hold to ourselves is to discover what we truly want to do. Um, and, and, and I think the, I think the laundry list that happens for pre-meds 
happens for a reason. I don't think any of the activities are bad. I'm not going to be out there saying I didn't do research. I didn't do clinical hours. I didn't volunteer, but my push towards every one of those did not come from a place of, okay, I've already started down this path. If I don't do this, I'm shortchanging myself. It was rather, this is actually interesting. And if I'm a, if I'm a doctor, if I'm a physician who's going to medical school, I need to love, I, I should love science. I should love the discovery. I should love the challenge of saying, okay, this is incongruent. It doesn't fix that easily. So research makes sense. Um, and I think that yeah. framing was critical for me. Do you, did you get that from somewhere? Like that idea of, okay, like, oh, I'm curious about this. Like, let's pay attention to that. Like, that's a really, that's a really, I, that's a really important thing to follow is sometimes it's not about, don't try to figure it all, all at once. Just be like, oh, this is interesting. Okay. That's good enough for the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it's kind of funny. It's just like, I'm, I'm definitely like a very, very, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it less. I'm seeing more of more of it, but I'm definitely like a strange kind of person for a doctor because I'm always like thinking about doing something different and always trying to do different things. Oh, by the way, it's like on that same note, I, uh, alchemist, I'm holding yes, up a, a copy of the book alchemist just because I'm like, I'm kind of always on my path of self-discovery, <laughs> but I've also got, um, <laughs> oh, you got both of them. I love it. I David, love it. My book David, David Goggins can't hurt me. I, I, so yeah, I had, I asked you, uh, uh -huh. you know, what books that you said, David got, what books do you like? Or would you, would you recommend yeah. David Goggins can't hurt me, Paul? This is a famous book, but I don't know how to say his name. Yeah. Paul, Paul Colo. Paul Colo. Yeah. Paul Colo. Um, yeah. The Alchemist. Yeah. Um, I just read that last year. And then, um, but then there were two others that you had suggested. Let me see. What were those? Yeah, I, I threw on. Um, oh, Steve Jobs. On, yeah, I I'm drew gonna... on Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add that to my list. And yeah, then uh, The Promised Land by Barack Obama. And I think the promise land. And I, I think you, I was, I was, are you just I, doing an all audio book or do you sit down and read? Uh, both. So, um, the alchemist, uh, the alchemist I've read, I think north of seven, eight times. And that exactly relates to the self-discovery concept. This is um, like, would you say this is part of, okay. Like if you had a North star or like a guiding light or sort of a code to live by, does this kind of, did that help you create that, that, 100%. okay. So the alchemist is so, you know, yeah. not a bad idea for, for people if they're on their summer I, break. I totally recommend it. And, and what's actually wild is the story of the, like me getting the alchemist is kind of interesting. So I played basketball growing up. It was my whole thing. Um, so my, nice. my travel basketball coach. So I, he's, he coached me all the way from fourth grade, all the way through into high school. Um, Are you a golden state year, fan. What's up? Golden state fan. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I can't okay. be. Um, that being said, I have a lot of nuanced takes when it comes to the Warriors, but we'll touch that. Um, uh, so my basketball coach, actually, when I was in sixth grade, um, gave me the book. There's no way a sixth oh, grader understands sixth that. grade? Wow. There's no way a sixth grader understands that book. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I also think that's the value of it. So the first time I read I mean, not from a way that the words are too fancy, but it's meaning, it's value, right? And he said, you're not going to get this now, but I want you to reread this every two years. 
said, okay, I'll read, read it every two years. So read it in sixth grade, read it in eighth grade, read it in 10th grade, read it again in 11th grade, read it again in 12th grade, read it again in college. Just, you kept, uh, so you just, did you just, is that because you just loved it the first time or why did you keep it's, rereading it? It's because I felt like every time I read it, I number one, didn't understand something about the book by extent, didn't something, understand something about myself. And every time I also read it, I understand something new about the book and I understood something new about myself. That's like, and that's cool. is what I found really, really cool about The Alchemist. The Alchemist, I mean, as, as a quick synopsis, not to spoil anything, there's not really spoiler. It's not, it's not the type of book for that. No, because it's all, I mean, it, it's basically, it's, it's open to interpretation for each yeah. person. So, and, and that's exactly why I loved it, which is it's, it follows. You're, you're searching for your golden treasure. Really? That's what it is. It's, it's following a shepherd, a traveler, um, on a young boy on, on his path to figure out what he's really caring about. And he's, there's this concept of a treasure. It's kind of an amorphous concept. It's a little bit ambiguous. Uh, there's a certain level of zeal and excitement he gets when thinking or talking about it, but you never really understand what it is. Um, until kind of when you get to the end and you realize that defining that is the process of defining that goal, the process of even finding out what that goal is, is the, is the end goal. And I think for me, that kind of correlates back to the point that you were saying, which is how are you focused on and get the curiosity and all that. And I think for me, the biggest thing, and I've talked about this in interviews, I've talked about this um, with peers, with friends, with mentors, uh, learning how to be process oriented and learning how to get fall in love with the process and be engaged with the ups and downs of the process. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to getting obsessed on what is that end goal when I really are not there. I don't know what it is. I don't know what yeah. it tastes like, feels like. It allows you to be really happy, bec uh, much happier because 99% of your time is the process. It's not the outcome. Yeah. And people, I mean, I always ask my students and every time I give a lecture, it's just like, what's your number one worry? And they're just like GPA getting in. They're like, they hate yeah. it. People hate the process. And it's like, I try to tell them like that does not go away. Like as soon as yeah. you get in, boom, it's like a whole new set of, it's like the same game all over again. You got to do USMLE yeah. uh, or Comlex um, or, or both. In my case, I did USMLE and Comlex, but it's like, then you're trying to get into the best residency and then it keeps going. And it's like, I did two fellowships too, by the way, <laughs> so I went to Yale for residency and then I did a fellowship at uh, UW Seattle children's. And then I did yeah. another fellowship, but it's just like that kind of thing. And it's just like, it just, you know, and if you were, if you have test taking and anxiety and imposter syndrome, you know, like that, it just, that if you don't like sort of change the way that you view the process, your imposter syndrome will continue to follow you no matter what. I mean, as high as, as successful as you could ever want to be, like it'll just keep following you until you just be like, okay, enough. Like I'm, I'm going to just like be curious and love this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's the hard part because I think this, this touches the entrepreneurship side, this touches the pre-med side, but it's not like the process itself inherently. Like we don't all enjoy every minute of every process. That's just not going to happen. Um, and, and I think learning about discovering yourself, what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you're willing to want to improve, what you just, or just don't want to touch. Um, there's no right or wrong to that, but uh, the same way, I mean, if we think about the entrepreneurship thing that, uh, I know medical entrepreneurship is going to be something in my future. I know it's something that like, I'm very attuned to that. I, I I'm, I'm better. I know I'm not going to be the, I wouldn't be the best 
pure academic uh, professor. I wouldn't be the best pure politician, but I know medical entrepreneurship is something I'm really good at. Um, even within the entrepreneurship space, 90% of the process itself is, is tough and it's not enjoyable. Um, you're dealing with personnel issues where team members of your team don't get along and it's always uncomfortable to deal with those things. You're dealing with funders always drop out on you, dealing with partners who, for lack of a better thing, don't even respond to an email. So then your program yeah. falls through. Like but, some, but some people, oh, it's, some, tough. it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Some people, but I think if you love that, environment then you know you're willing to be okay oh god this is annoying you know whatever but you know i just you just made me think of something like is if you think of the end game in mind which i think for many people because medical school is so hard to get into a lot of it is basically thinking like i just got to get in and then all my problems are solved and i kind of had that mentality and i finally i did get in because let's face it if you if you basically put concentrate all your effort on one thing you are eventually i think you can get there so i think that if people work hard enough it may take three years it may take four even five years but people can get there so what happened to me was that i finally i finally got in and then i was kind of well i, I had focused so much on like just getting in that it was like a house of cards like it kind of everything fell apart in my fourth year because i didn't know what next because the, yeah. the next question is what, what specialty, what residency do you want to apply? I hadn't thought that far ahead. I just thought it's only about getting in. And it was like, so I say house of cards, like the whole thing fell apart. And I'm just like, I don't even know. I was so confused. Yeah. So that's why I like to, I, lo I love for people to know like, okay, it's just like, you know, what excites you? What would you like to be doing in like, uh, you know, in the next 10 years? What would, what would just to forget about, like, you're going to get in like, yes, take, let's make yeah. sure that you work on all that, but what are you working for? And what, what are we excited about? Exactly. But exactly. speaking of which, what, is, so where did you decide to go? What, which, uh, yeah. So, um, I finally settled on Stanford, Stanford med, nice. uh, which I bet was, that was a, bet that was a hard choice. That <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's funny because sometimes I, I talk to people about it and it's, I think there's always perspective that needs to be given, like a preface, the whole thing with, I'm undoubtedly overly grateful. Um, I know there's, there's yeah. number of students who, that I know personally, who the application cycle didn't end up going their way, or they didn't get into any school. Oh, yeah. They're brilliant people. You can meet them and know them and you've seen their contribution. You know, that patients could, would connect with them and the process itself, the process itself is a crapshoot. So the outcomes are worse than a crapshoot. And this relates to what we're talking about is that it, that that outcome does not define who those people are. At the same time, I think for I think that same lens needs to be applied both ways, where it's that not getting into a school is not necessarily a failure. It's not an indictment of, oh, you're a horrible person. At the same time, getting into a school, it does isn't the end all be all of everything where it's like, OK, now you have the rubber stamp of you're amazing. That's I think you take them both with a grain of salt. Um, yeah, I mean, it could it could help sometimes sometimes not getting in can be helpful because you're like, exactly. OK, well, maybe not yet. And and then you've been gifted time to do something, you know, like in my case, I had yeah. three years. So those those three years were, I would say, like some of that time was maybe not spent on the best stuff, but some of it was very valuable. Like I, I really I did a lot of rock climbing and skiing. Yeah. And yeah. there's no way I would have been able to work on and, and really hone in 
on that type of just basically take an entire day with my buddy. I have nothing else to think about. I, yes, I was studying for the MCAT, like I was doing MCAT stuff, but you know, you could take a whole day and like go climbing yeah. and even multiple days. But, um, so that's, that's, that is a, uh, that's one way to look at not, not getting in. And I'm glad that you brought that up because, um, yeah, I've, I've never seen so many, um, so, well, now I'm like really getting to meet a lot of pre-meds just because yeah. of teaching at USC. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that are just like, oh my God, like I got good grades. I did this or whatever. And I'm like, I didn't get any, anything, no interviews or anything. So, and, and I think obviously it speaks to, I mean, we have a physician shortage in the country. There's no shock about it. There's physician yeah. shortages in the most important places and family medicine, et cetera. I think there is a systematic problem that we're touching on there. And, and that's a whole separate can of worms. Um, that we could touch on if you want, but at least if we're looking at the more micro level, the more individualistic level, um, connecting back to kind of what I was saying earlier, it's all perspective where um, the problems all become relative, right? So I think in the end, for me, we're talking about process and outcome. And um, I ended up getting in, into the schools I got into. Um, and I think the application itself is such a weird process because it takes so long. There's You start working on it about a year and a half before you actually go to the medical school. So the whole thing yeah. is actually super, super long and especially for the Ivy leagues and stuff. So I had my interviews, most of my interviews for, uh, Yale, for Harvard, for Hopkins, for UCLA, WashU, Columbia, um, they all happened very early in the cycle. So like early September, which I got yeah. very lucky, but it's very stressful. I had like a bunch of interviews right off the bat. You only hear from a lot of those schools all the way in March. So it teaches you patience. You got to sit, sit and wait. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I think the the overwhelming feeling that eventually did hit me is that like, when you get in, it's obviously a lot of elation right off the bat. You're very surprised. You're shocked. There's imposter syndrome, but then you have a decision and then it's hard again. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and no matter kind of what position, unless you only get into one school or there's a dream school or whatever, um, what I ended up finding the most challenging process. So part of the process was to figure out how to say no, um, oh, yeah. the ability to not say no throughout my life has always been a kind of an advantage, which is like, Hey, I'm willing to take things on. I'm willing to fail and, and not be afraid of it. But this was one of the few times I had to go to an incredible institution where I could have easily seen myself and say no. And, um, in the end, my, my call eventually came down to Harvard versus Stanford. Um, and. I had to balance so many different things. Uh, I'm from near, I'm from the Bay area. So Stanford is, is pretty close. And for certain people, that's a big pull for other people. That's like a, Hey, I would rather go elsewhere. Um, I've grown up and lived in California my whole life. So a huge part of me was like, okay, I want to, I want to get out. Uh, I'm not from like escape California, but I want to go explore a new place, learn about myself in, a, in an age where I can do that and flexibly do that. But then there's finances on the other side where it was more expensive one way. Wait, I thought, so I thought that both options are expensive. They're both pretty expensive, undoubtedly. Um, they, but you thought... gives a little bit better of an aid package typically. But uh, is it cost of living? Cost of living is expensive, both places. Both cost of living places. in Stanford is a little bit worse. Right. Yeah, so the only it thing... Be, is, it might be a so wash then, huh? It, it, it kind of is. It depends on the student circumstances, I will say, because okay. it depends on the financial aid package that's given to you. Um, a lot of the, the quote-unquote IVs where that level Stanford's not an IV, but if you want to lump it in, um, the problem, at least for their medical school approaches and what I find to be a pretty large issue is that 
a lot of them only focus or don't provide any other forms of aid like merit-based aid yeah um, and i think that when you get and and their need-based calculators themselves are pretty stringent too so like uh at least harvard is pretty decently known for being pretty tough financial aid wise they don't give a whole lot compared to other schools um there's other schools like nyu or u chicago that, that take a fully different approach u chicago N- just announced- nyu is that was that two NYU, years right. they completely changed everything yeah, they, now it's just like you if you get into nyu you just don't have to pay yeah, you don't pay tuition, right? Which is really huge. Um, Chicago crazy. just rolled something out two months ago saying that half of their students are going to be on full rides, full, full, covering full cost of attendance. Um, so schools are taking different approaches. I it's think such a, that's a punch in the gut for someone who's still got, I'm still chipping away at. I know, it's, it's ridiculous. By it's choice. Crazy. I mean, I've got my student loan. Some of them, whatever's left is like super low interest, but still, I'm just like, ah. Oh. No, it's, it, it, they just stick around, which is. But yeah, I think it's I good. Know. These <laughs> things are changing for the better because that uh, what this is this not just medical school, but the cost of education has outpaced standard inflation by at least two two times. I think two point five. Two point so 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 uh, educational American educational inflation, higher education is two point five times the standard inflation so that's clearly not not good yeah and i think also if you take the subset and look at medical school there's a lot of parts that's even worse um i'm looking over at my bookshelf here because i'm going to pull a book over for once just because we're talking about money you had said oh this is well this is maybe this is a good time to can you hear me good by the way oh yeah yeah audio is good yeah audio is great um i mean i guess since we're on this topic like what is what do you so what do you wish that they taught in school mm-hmm. and the only reason i'm like i'm not trying to like you know subvert the topic but we yeah. are on the topic of money yeah. you had already told me offline yeah but that the name of the show is what do you what i i wish they taught in that so i always ask everybody that's on but um i think especially for students like myself who don't come from like incredible generational wealth like we're not sitting on loads of cash that i just don't really care about and i think for most students um personal finance personal uh, finance personal yeah. finance they don't teach that in don't teach it. not don't even in not even in usc no and and i think the frustration that a lot of students have with it is i'll be one to say that there's a lot of classes that you go through and you feel like when is this ever going to help me yeah. And when am I ever going to remember this? How am I going to retain this information? When am I going to actually be asked to use these things? Now, I think that approach to general education is not helpful. I think that you don't know when you're going to use certain information. So go into it fully. But personal finance is one of those things that everyone's ears will perk up to because we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and I think as, as, as students, as young people who are going into a space of unprecedented student debt, that they're going into unprecedented levels of whether it's income inequality, whether it is um, work hours for really difficult positions, whether it's a changing workforce. Uh, we have we have tools that are potentially going to change entirely how we approach occupations, and we'll touch AI and all that stuff later. Oh, we got to talk about um, AI. Yeah, I can't well, wait. <laughs> eventually, let's, let's, we'll, we'll get there in a bit. But I think for students who we just, there's no real concept of what that means. Like, 
And, and, and that's the frustration where, so I was a business finance major or minor, one of my minors at USC was business finance. Um, and yes, I learned quite excessively about bankruptcy court and talking about liquidation of assets and different ways to, to IPO and things like that. But even at, even in my business finance level, I really looked at the number of classes that focused on, okay, what is a Roth IRA account? What's I'm so glad that you brought that up. Just um, to like what is what are what are low interest loans what how do you manage a student loan um like basic personal finance things what is credit what are credit cards debts like what's the point of having multiple credit cards or yeah how should you spend how should you build credit um what are ways that you can set up your kids eventually for financial saving what's a 529 mm -hmm. educational plan and a lot of these terms that i'm throwing out i'm sorry for the listener if it just sounds like name dropping but if it does that illustrates my point whereas yeah. as students we there are so many things that even my friends and, and we're talking about the most highly educated institutions. You talk about USC, you can talk about the UCs, you can talk to the Ivies. Like students walk out of it not well equipped to understand how to handle themselves financially. And I think that leads to not just mistakes financially, but it also leads to just suboptimal ways of going about the next 10 years, which oh yeah. Are very like liberating, but also burdensome at the same time. It and, could be longer than 10 years depending yes. on how how dig a big a hole you dig i mean at, yeah. just to well i i love okay so i'm just going to jump in here for a second um day one of medical school or maybe like day day <laughs> ne, like day before medical school starts we i have a meeting with the you know the finance people we get in oh, they financial. pack us into a room and they're like okay here are your because a lot of us were on you know, a hundred percent student. I was on student. I took out, you know, all student loans mm -hmm. and they're just like, no one had explained this to us. And uh, we had already accepted. We're there. We got our housing school classes start the next day and they put up a slide and they're like, here is what you will be paying back. And it was like 430,000 or something like that. And I was just like, holy shit. I was like, I'm like, I, what am I going to do now? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm already, you know, and I was lucky because this was in 2000. So we were, I was at essentially like the rock bottom of uh, the, yeah. of, of, and then I, I kind of like, I locked in like my government loans that like, was this post.com bubble and everything. It was, yeah. So two, well, 2000 was right around that time. And then, um, so the, um, so I don't think I was, so my, my, um, my government loans were not like really accruing interest at that point. Um, and so then nine, nine 11 happened. That was, I was my second year med student when that happened. And then, you know, by the time I got out 2004, like everybody refinanced and you could refinance into a 2.5%, um, government loan. And that was like as good as it ever got. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad that I did that because I went to a private DO school, which had that, you know, those are like, that's a pretty high tuition. Yeah. But yeah. So anyway, so it's like, I am just an example of someone who, I mean, I learned maybe a little bit from my dad, but I really didn't learn this basic stuff that I wish I knew, like Mr. Money Mustache. I don't know if you ever heard of him. His blog is really good for, if you want to just, for anybody, you don't even have to be in medicine, but just reading like the the very, very first, like one of the top posts he has is about the the shockingly simple math behind early retirement. What's cool <laughs> about it is it's a mathematical equation that's not that easy. It's like yeah. if you want to know when you can stop working, it's when you have basically 25 times the amount of what you'll spend in a year. 
Yeah. Or you can reverse engineer that and just say like, I just need, if I have a nest egg of, I don't know, like, let's just say a million dollars, you can, you can basically, you can spend no more than 4% of that total nest egg and never run out of money. Those are like, these are the, the little concepts that I, I was never taught. So you can know exactly what your, what your, what your goal, like your, if your number one goal is, okay, I want to, I want to just make sure that money is not an issue and I need to be retiring early, which the fire space finance, like financial independent retire early is like really kind of exploded in the last decade. Yeah, agreed. That's what it's all about is that like just I need to know what my number is and then you can reverse engineer your life. Yes. But can. if you start off like most people do, which is I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing and I just start taking on all this credit, the credit card debt, and then you add student loan. It's like, whoa, by the time you figure it out, you're like, you could have a net worth of negative $350,000. And I, that was, <laughs> that happened to me. And a hundred percent. And there's, there's a couple of resources I'm going to throw out for students or for any listener. It doesn't even have to be students. Um, I think the first one of them I would say is the psychology of money by Morgan Housel. Um, I read that book. It's pretty short. It's pretty accessible. Um, Here, keep going. I'm going to grab this book. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so the psychology of money by Morgan Housel is a really good book. It doesn't go super much into the technical, but it talks about like, uh, what was the approach. second one? Um, I'm still on the psychology of money. So oh, psychology it talks money. about an approach for, um, it talks about an approach towards saving and investing in money that just calms you down a little bit. If anything, it's, an, it's a good emotional standing. Well, yeah, because otherwise it's, it's a nebulous cloud of really pink smoke. It really but is. if you, so, when you know, when it's like, okay, this is actually, it's not rocket science. It's not. And, and that's, that's also the problem where like, it's made to feel like rocket science. Like the complexity oh. that seems to come out there is crazy. Anyway, Morgan Housel's psychology money is really good um, for students as well, uh, or expiring doctors. Um, we're obviously in a nuanced position just based on timeline, based upon student loan amount, et cetera. There's, uh, there's a book by Chirag Shah called Financial Freedom Rx, um, which is basically like talking about specifically for doctors and curtailing some of that financial advice for physicians or soon to be physicians, yeah. simply because we're on a very different timeline than a lot of other kind of other professional workers. Right. Yeah. You have to really, you've got to leverage a little bit, but then you've got a pretty good, pretty yeah. good pretty good um increase in earning potential exactly like uh, the, the runway is just a very different exponential curve than what a lot of other professional professions look at especially Which, if you're having kids etc yeah but i do think that if you're if you're listening to this and you're worried about that it's just like i can tell you that it is it is a great thing when you do graduate medical school and it's like you you've got good earning potential and it's like you almost are almost always in demand whatever specialty yeah. you choose Exactly. So I don't think, I think there's a certain level of security that way. Um, but so yeah. Who, financial Sorry, Freedom uh, Rx? Who? Yeah, fine. It's, I think it's by Chirag Shah. Um, okay. He runs a guest lecture at Stanford as well, where uh, I don't know if it's read, like publicly available, but I lose, uh, like his book is pretty, is, is pretty good. It lays out a lot of different concepts um, and it's quite, quite useful. So Financial Freedom Rx, specifically for doctors. I think if you're thinking about um, if you're thinking about just broader personal finance, you don't have to be pre-med, et cetera, at least at a, 
at a 21, 22, 23, start understanding at least about basic macro like economic terms, understand what interest rates are, uh, understand who controls interest rates, like what is the Fed, um, understand different accounts that you can open up. So if it's a brokerage account, what you're looking at, mm-hmm. if you're opening up a Roth IRA, Roth IRA specifically for students, again, this is a big plug, um, understanding, especially for MDs, then if you have a little bit of more disposable income, or if you have a little bit of financial support or a nest egg you're working off of, et cetera, um, Roth IRAs allow you to uh, invest up to 6,500. I think the current limit is per year yep. um, into a specific account. You don't pay tax on it. Like it, it's, it's, it's uh, post-tax income. So let's say like you have either a job after you paid taxes, your parents are helping you out, et cetera. And you can invest that similarly into ETF stocks, bonds, whatever you want to do. And that accrues and you can pull it out in retirement without being taxed on it, which is actually quite beneficial because yeah. that can complement your eventual 401k that you get from your actual job. So understand what an IRA is, understand what the 401k is, understand when are you going to pay taxes or not. Um, I think that for the more developed personal finance concepts, whether it's thinking like real estate or like active day trading, et cetera, I think as as aspiring physicians, I'm speaking specifically to the pre-med listeners out there, um, that we're a little bit limited on at this current stage based upon the fact that we don't really have a lot of assets across the board. Um, That's what, yeah. physicians honestly get into later in life. So just because you are down the medical path and uh, business isn't baked into the training, which, I mean, uh, that's a whole separate argument. I do think there should be a business of medicine concept in medical school that's a lot more pronounced. But just because of that does not mean that you shouldn't become purely financially literate and understand the ins and outs of the system because you're going to be challenged enough. So Um, this is... um, So this is... uh... White coat investor, yes, sir. Yeah, that this is a this is the white coat investor guide for students, and I am so I'm teaching a summer class at USC called Future Physicians for it's going to be high school students. Love this that. is actually so this is actually required. I don't know if we'll get through the whole book, but um, but it but this is pretty good. And then just his um, I mean, a lot of people might say like, okay, well, white that's not me if i'm not going into medicine or whatever but the concepts are pretty much universal and i like that you brought up the roth ira i i actually i remember i was a senior in college and they had mentioned i had a i had a part-time job while i was a senior and they're like okay you can put some money into a roth ira i was just like wait a second retirement (laughs) that is 40 50 50 years in the future i'm like I need that money now. Like, why, why do I even care? I mean, it's very, very difficult to like understand why it even matters, but I guess what it would have been nice is for someone to say, you don't understand is that for every dollar you can put away now, that dollar becomes like a worker for you. And there's compound interest where like that dollar has a lot of power in the future. And then, you that money will never be taxed on so i wish someone had just said like okay listen you can you put two hundred dollars can you put one hundred dollars into a roth ira can you just do that yeah and then just like just just try to forego i mean for me it's like if i had uh i don't know like if i had a couple hundred bucks it was i needed to buy like dj equipment because that was another part-time job i had so i'm just like i had to keep reinvesting in my business so i needed equipment and stuff 
it's very difficult for me to, to to wrap my head around putting away a little bit of money for the future but i really didn't understand the power of uh compound interest on yeah. your on your dollars today yeah so that's what i would say i mean i think that's great advice and i think any one of these books um is going to be uh something that even just reading a tiny little bit is going to already sort of open up your eyes to yeah. it's not that hard it's 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 really not and and i would love for the space to be more demystified i would love for because i think these these things apply to law students these apply to ed, to students who don't come to even undergrad education with any either school like institutional help federal help or or parental help like all of these are applicable um and and i just think being financially literate on a personal level whether or not you can go and critique what chairman powell is doing or whatever is happening on a macro level i think just at least on a personal level being financially literate is something that we we need to expect but as educators itself and as someone who's going to be in an educational space is, is is a change that we also need to press and and something that i hope that all students can at least have a little bit of confidence to say, Hey, when I go open up a credit card, I know what I'm dealing with. So, well, let's, uh, let me just see if I can, I'm not going to play devil's advocate here on this, yeah. but let's just say, let's say you got someone who's like, okay, they're 12. Like my kids are <laughs> five and seven, yeah. but eventually I'm going to have a 12 year old. And that let's say I sat down with my 12 year old one day and like, let's, let's talk about this number mm. and the number's called net worth which is you add up all your assets and you add up all your liabilities. And then the, you know, the aggregate of all your, your negative balances and your positive balances is a number called your net worth, which is, you know, so that's how much money you have. And it, as you come out of medical school, it's not uncommon to have a net worth of 100 or ne negative 200 or, or in some really bad cases, three or negative three or 400 cases. And that's not necessarily the end of the world because because you can reverse that but if you if we start teaching our children and adolescents um to sort of monitor net worth um on the one hand you, on the one hand we might be doing as you say like let's you know we got to teach people to be careful about their their consumer debt you know, so because when you have if you're monitoring your net worth, obviously, when you have credit card debt, you're going to see your net worth go down. But are we would we be teaching our children that that it's life is all about a net worth because there's more to life than. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the important. I, I think for me, I honestly stay away from the net worth concept pretty collectively from most what I would recommend I, obviously now we're getting a little bit more into like what I would teach, but I don't think net worth is, is actually a very representative statistic. It's the same way. I think if we're to equated for a pre-med listener audience, you know, how BMI is not really super representative because you could have a very muscular person who is very strong on a BMI level and a person who has more adipose tissue who's more, more sedentary um, with a similar BMI. It doesn't really show the whole picture. Um, so I won't honestly touch net worth, especially for people as young as that. I think for like kids who are like 10, 12, like even high schoolers, the principle of just the saving money is something that needs to be shown, not just taught be like, oh, you need to, if I give you allowance, you don't spend it. That's not really what I'm saying. It's more of teaching that, okay, if, if you get a money, you're not, you shouldn't be saying, okay, how can I spend all $5 that I just earned from working at this bake sale? 
or from doing this lemonade stand, I'm not going to spend all $5 right away. Um, I think it's just, and that's showing them like as parents showing by good financial practices, but as well as telling them. And I think as the, obviously the intelligence and the understanding of the ecosystem evolves and you start to go to college is when you can start to introduce actual concepts. Um, yeah. but it, like the very simple, I mean, and I can call back to at least my, my, my parents' experience. And so, cause my, my parents are both immigrants to this country. My dad, um, always used to tell us about, I mean, he didn't come from the wealthiest of families, but he talked about his mother, um, back in India, never didn't have an education, didn't, didn't go to school, but had the basic principle of, Hey, if I get cash, I split it in half that immediately goes to savings. I get that other cash. I split it in half that goes towards this type of savings. And I split the other part in half and I send that towards any debt that things or any like long-term saving. There was a dowry was a big concept in India. And then that final yeah, I'm willing to spend. I went to an Indian wedding. One of my yeah. best friends in medical school. Wait, so where, what city are they from or what region? My, my parents are uh, mostly from South India. So they're both okay. born in Chennai, which is in Tamil Nadu. Um, and then my, my dad grew up primarily um, in, uh, in Mumbai. Um, Mumbai. Okay. So they was their primary language was not Hindi then. No. So their primary language is Tamil, which is uh, one Tamil. Of the, yeah. The bigger or Tamil, however you want to call it. Yeah. It's one of the more. Uh, it's the primarily one of the bigger languages in the south. But Did they, they teach both, you that when you were growing up, or? Yeah. So um, I'm. I, I will say that's one of my personal regrets is I I'm not perfectly fluent in it simply because I don't use it often. Hindi. Um, uh, for Tamil specifically, Hindi, what? Hindi. I don't really, oh. really speak in the house. But May I Hindi, <laughs> Yeah, Hindi, I can, per I mean, Tamil, I can perfectly understand. At least when I go back to India, it's, it helps me to communicate with grandparents, etc. So that's been helpful. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, on that concept, just like going back to the saving part, that doesn't even have to come from super formalized education. Like my grandma didn't have any of that um, as a woman in India in that generation. But it's the concept of, okay, if I get the 10 bucks, I'm not spending all 10 bucks, I'm not spending nine bucks of it because yeah. that principle, if you at least build upon that will lead because eventually they can understand you don't just have to keep that in cash. You can put it into an investment account and you can invest it in the stocks market or ETFs or anything like that. But it's all built upon the back of the principle of saving. Um, the same way, like let's just demystify the concept by making it super simple and then we can add all the terms and the fancy stuff on top of it. So, so, um, um you're gonna i don't know if you probably don't know who your classmates are but they are um they are about to start taking on some pretty pretty <laughs> strong debt i wonder is stanford offered anything in terms of like here's some here here's some financial tips because you're going to need to know this because you are all of a sudden you are now taking on yeah big amount of debt to go go here yeah. So actually the financial freedom book I shouted out, I found that on Stanford's website. Okay. Uh, so they, Oh, that's cool. That's so on their I, website. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty, um, they're pretty, I think we're all a little bit more, I, I will say a little bit more knowledgeable about it now generally, because at least the, the, the public discussion around student loans, just in the broader political ecosystem, et cetera, has been pretty loud. Yes. So I think students are just pretty conscious of it. We had, uh, we were, we were very much in the dark. Back yeah, and I think in that way it's improving dramatically. Um, obviously, it's it, it would be lovely for uh, medical or schools to help us out a little bit more. I mean, it's always going to be there's always a little bit more to be done. Um, what are, are they giving you housing or 
No, so so typically how the the cost structure breaks down for med school is that you have your tuition, which is going to range anywhere typically. Typically ranges between anywhere between 45 and 70k a year. Yeah. In, in tuition. And that ranges, and I'm talking those ranges specifically because in-state UCs are around the 40s, um, which is still pretty substantial. So in-state University of California, if you are an in-state resident, um, and then private schools get all the way up to 70. So that's tuition. And then you have the rest of the cost of living, basically, which is your rent, which is your other biggest cost. And if you're in one of the bigger cities, you can assume anywhere between one to 2K a month in rent. So if you're thinking New York, you're on the higher end of that, yeah, you're yeah, very yeah. expensive. And I think that's why, and if you think of NYU as a concept, I mean, uh, thankfully you're getting your tuition off, but uh, I mean, cost of living there is nuts, especially when you're in that is, area of New York. Is it worse than Stanford? Is that uh, Palo Alto or what's yeah. the... Uh, I would say they're about comparable. Um, okay, Palo so... Alto is one of the hotbeds of the Bay Area where it's just wealth on insane levels. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's pretty tough. I will say... Like just to put it out that I'm I'm paying around 1.8 for Palo Alto rent, um, but that's at Stanford's subsidized graduate housing. I don't know how subsidized it is, but I mean one point. Okay, so it's part of the. They have a. Um, they have housing that you can. Yes. Choose to live in. Uh, okay. Yeah. So their graduate student housing, at least Stanford specifically, is quite extensive. Mm -hmm. uh, most medical schools will have simpler options for students to to use, especially in the first two years. It's in the almost almost guaranteed, almost guaranteed in the first year. Um, not guaranteed housing, but almost that they will have options for you because you get into the school relatively later than what you would need to actually get into the housing market. So they help you out in the first year. Um, generally, it's the same kind of process in undergrad, but as you get a little bit older in medical school, students tend to move off campus or into just like normal, regular people apartments. Um, but at least for Stanford, there's a very extensive graduate uh, housing community. Um, and because it's so expensive right off campus, like Palo Alto is some insane stuff. Yeah. Um, the students end up sticking around at those grad housings for- That makes years. sense. Yeah. You know, as a, I, I, um, when I, I went to live in New Zealand, this was after I finished a fellowship. I went to go and live in New Zealand and I was became friends with a local man who was a investment. He was like a, um, a financial advisor and we would, you know, surf together. And, I, and I was asking him one day, I was just like, man, why, tell me, I want to know investments. Like, tell, help me out. Like, you know, he's just like, Oh man, he's like, Oh, brew, you already, you already made your best investment. <laughs> and I was like, what's that? He's like, I'm in medical school. So I thought that was kind of interesting that yeah. he said that. So it's, yeah. I mean, that may be actually difficult for people to see the long, like sort of the long-term thing, but it's like the concept of take of, of paying 70 grand for a year of tuition is that is pretty high. That's it pretty is, scary. Yeah. It's in the, so in the end cost of attendance, and this is not something that I was like, I mean, I hope it's not a surprise to all the listeners, but especially the pre-med students. The cost of attendance a year is relatively 100k. That's what you can, if you were to generally just tabulate but all the that costs, because that's tuition, but then your living expenses, right? Tuition plus rent plus food plus. So you got to spend a hundred. Utilities, you're gonna spend 100k. I mean, now, that makes. That's what's the. That's what's just reported. Now, obviously, aid is huge. Like yeah. if you end up getting financial aid, if you're coming from positions where you have excessive financial need, 
um, and they're able to evaluate and or if you have merit scholarships, et cetera. And it's that's a very personal so decision. So let me use some insight for me. Um, Stanford obviously is quite expensive. Harvard would have equivalently be quite expensive as well as Yale and Duke and Cornell. Um, but at the same time, I also had really good schools in WashU and, and UCLA that were paying me fully. So I could have easily made those decisions as well. I would have not faulted anyone to also make those. The only reason I didn't was the fact that I was already coming off of a, an undergrad education where I didn't spend anything. So USC, I was fortunate enough to get fully covered by USC on a merit scholarship coming out of undergrad or high school. So yeah. my parents had, and this is one of the financial advices I have for uh, not just pre-meds, but any student who is trying to potentially prepare for their kid's education, um, is something called a 529 education plan. 529 education plan is an investment uh, savings plan where you can put in uh, cash uh, after tax income. And you can put in cash and that can accrue investment returns without getting taxed. And that's really critical because the tax that you get on investment returns is pretty substantial. Yeah. So, and that's what we got. People are always asking, what do I need to know about taxes? And I say, hey, let's make, try to figure out how to not pay as much tax. Yeah, exactly. Just so start tax. storing your money in places that yeah. are tax, what we call tax sheltered. Uh, tax shelters. Exactly. So 529s allow you to save for not just kids' education, but for education purposes yeah. and accrue over time and not pay taxes. Now, the caveat to that is that if you try to use those funds for non-education purposes, let's say, let's say over 20 years, I was investing in a 529, I've racked up 300K in that 529, I only spent like 150 of it at undergrad because of, I don't know, merit scholarships, et cetera. If I wanted to use the other 150 for non-education purposes, then you're taxed at a very high level because they're making up for the Well, the, the secure 2.0, like the, the law that just went into effect, I guess it was, la it was the last year or the year before is now mm -hmm. the, the recipient of the 529 can actually um, basically just uh, use it as a Roth IRA. So they yeah. actually, so this new rule allows you a lot more flexibility. So it's really, it's, it's kind of like another stealth, like Roth. Exactly. IRA. So it's a no brainer. So everybody should be trying to put whatever they can into Roth IRA and a, a 520, 529. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. So yeah. So, so perfect. So that's perfectly leads to my point. So, so the context behind it is my, my family had saved in a 529, a good amount um, my brother, who's two years older than me, graduated early from college, had a number of leftover cash. So I was sitting on a little bit that I was comfortable or ready to use. So my debt burden walking out of Stanford or Harvard, um, and specifically, specifically as someone who's interested in medical innovation, who may be getting an MD, MBA, that's a separate point that we can talk about, which is the dual degree uh, approach. MD, MBA, uh, that you you might do that or you're going to do so that? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty set on it, but the might still exists in that you just you only apply when you're in a second year. Oh, okay. Uh, at, at any of these programs. So whether it be Harvard or Stanford. I right, that makes, that. I could see that. That makes sense for you. That's yeah. pretty cool. Um, and especially talking about either it's HBS at Harvard. I mean, now, I mean, I can wipe the door on Harvard, but it's GSB at Stanford graduate school of business, which is one of the top business schools in the world. And, yeah. and definitely the best business school for anything entrepreneurship wise. Um, and then for anything self-starter or any technology approach. Well, wait uh, a Now I, I got to ask about this yeah. because this is, uh, I'm super interested in, I've always, I've, I've always been thinking about doing more education, but, mm. um, can't, what is it that you can get from, cause they're, you're saying that Stanford is one of the best business schools. 
mm-hmm. why can't I just read all the books? Like what, what, what is, what do you get from the, yeah. the MBA? Um, from is it the connection or? Yes. Um, I would say that, and this is in my 22 year old. So if I get an admissions counselor coming after me, I'm just like, this is the caveat. I'm not that I'm not yet there to, to make the overwhelming statement. However, I mean, the, the discourse in the broader space over the past 10 years is that business school is not as worth it anymore. And I think there's a lot of utility in, the, in those dis- arguments. Um, I think there's a lot of sense. The education that you actually get, you can find it online for free. You can learn accounting online. You can learn budgeting online. You can learn marketing online. You can learn all this for free. I mean, if you, you have to be pretty, pretty self-motivated. Yeah, I guess that's one, one advantage of going to school is it's like, I've signed up. I'm paying the money. Yeah. Now people hold me accountable. Yeah. Um, although I would like business school is very expensive. It's a lot of money. Um, now there's a caveat for the MD MBA that I'll talk about in a bit, but I think the utility that exists in business school is the network and the name. Yeah. So if you talk to those who just do business school, now this is very different from the, for the MD MBAs. That's a very different space. But if you talk to those who just do business school, who maybe came from an investment banking background, et cetera, what they've learned on the job in investment banking is more applicable to what they will continue to be doing than what they're going to learn in the classroom in business school. Right. So this has a medical slant to it. Yeah. So, so the, the medical slant is slightly different, but for, for most normal students, you're not going to business school for the technical knowledge purely. You're going for the network and the name because yeah. it, is, it is almost like a fraternity uh, in, in the way that obviously there's no hazing or anything, but you enter a, an elite group where just by association, you're opened opportunities. Yeah. And in that way, uh, specifically, if you look at GSB at Stanford, so many startups, tech-wise, health-wise, um, lifestyle-wise, uh, products like software and hardware, all are bred out of the startup ecosystem in and around Stanford because it is the Silicon Valley, it is Palo Alto, that simply by being there, you are connected to every VC that exists. Yeah. And I think that is that is a network that also, I mean, I, I hope students who are listening or anyone who's listening that understand the value of networks, both in mentors as well as knowing people, it's something that you can't quantify and is honestly something that a lot of people pay for. In other words, why they pay for business school. Yeah. It's the name in the network that people go into business school. The medical slant side of it is that there are obviously in the United States, healthcare is a business being competent as a physician on the business side of it is incredibly important. Having the MBA um, is quite beneficial if you're thinking about trying to combine the medical approach with business venture approaches. So if you're thinking of policy that is related to insurance, if you're thinking of Indian insurance companies, if you're thinking of Google or Amazon Health or as a hospital administrator, being able to understand the ins and outs of the actual business world while combining that with your clinical knowledge enables you to be a very powerful physician, but also an advocate for your patients in places that they're definitely not at the table, yeah. where they are not making decisions at X level in terms of insurance, that they're not there when we're talking about which, which diagnostic imaging or thing is covered, et cetera. To be able to advocate for your patients with the business savvy is something that I'm very interested in. And I think the MD MBA, it's actually only a five-year program as opposed to being four plus two, because an MBA is typically two years. You get the one MD at- MBA is actually constricted. They put it in one year. Yeah. And at least the value at GSB and 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 Harvard's and similar business schools um, is that at least for GSB specifically, they only evaluate student assets for your financial aid. 
They're not looking at parental assets. They're not looking at what you have saved up long term. And as MD students, we're all broke. Yeah. So the assets that I have to my name are pretty insignificant. So a lot of my MBA tuition, if I end up going down that route and I'm fortunate enough to get in, et cetera, is going to be covered by the school. So financially, it's not as burdensome that, that as, as other people would expect. Um, so really, I would still only be paying for the four years of medical school. Yes, the housing costs will still exist, but I think the long-term payout is something I'm willing to have. Well, I mean, speaking of <laughs> speaking of having uh, being broke and not not having a lot, what is the uh, I wanted to ask you about what what are the things that are give you a lot of value for like the lowest amount of money? Yeah, I think it'd be uh, interesting to like talk talk about that. I mean, obviously, you get a lot of value out of like paying going to these great schools, but it's like, what is what what is this like um, sleep mouth tape? Oh yeah, that's a super. Yeah, this is this is this, this provide this is a tremendous amount of value. I was actually just trying to research about it, but it's like to actually have tape that forces you to breathe through your nose while you're sleeping. Yeah, is um, um I don't know. I, I'm actually I haven't read the research on it, but is it does it research? Yeah, that's, that's that's another uh, it's another broke student thing that you don't even need the tape. You could you buy scotch tape if you want to. It just hurt when you take it off. Does it make uh, you uh, help you sleep better though? It does. So so major plug. One of my big podcast recommendations for all the health nuts. Just most. I mean, everyone's seen him, but yeah, should actually listen to what he talks about. Andrew Huberman is incredible. Oh yeah, the Huberman Lab. Yeah, um, Huberman Lab is great. He is um. He's a researcher at Stanford, um, a, a neuroscience researcher, and talks a lot about, he's a really good podcast platform, public platform, to talk about daily things that um, that you and I can do that are actually neurologically research-backed that improve our daily outcomes. One of the biggest, biggest things that he talks about is nose breathing. Um, we are slowly becoming more and more and more mouth breathers. Mouth breathing is actually quite detrimental to everything from the level of oxygen saturation, your lymph, lymph node drainage, your circulation, but it also impacts things like your face shape. Um, it sounds whack, but if you go listen to Huberman's podcast, he'll talk a lot about it or if you just search it up. Um, but breathing through your nose actually better shapes your face. Um, if you rely too much on mouth breathing, a lot of your jaw structure things like that change over time to be less optimal and, and mm -hmm. things like sleep apnea, excessive snoring, et cetera. So the over, overnight sleep mouth tape is the basic concept that uh, a lot of people, if you see them sleeping, they'll sleep with their mouth open and they'll be breathing through their mouth, which is not good. So yeah. it's literally just a small piece of tape cover on the lips and forces you through the night to learn how to breathe through your nose. And it also improves that when you're in the day, when you're just existing, you you focus a lot more on nose breathing, which is a deeper form of inhalation, filters out stuff better because that's what your nose does. Regulate temperature. It's it's just a whole lot better. So was it hard the first night? Was it like uh, first couple nights? It's hard, especially if you have a background of mouth breathing. Then it's uh, it's very uncomfortable, huh? It is. It is a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I I will so so I had asthma like pretty badly growing up. So I used to have to like, like really gulp air at certain points. Um, so I relied a decent amount on mouth breathing, but also being an athlete, you're taught to regulate your breath and you're taught to control your breath. So it wasn't as hard for me as I would envision for some other people. Um, I know there's other people who are just like perennial mouth breathers that don't breathe through their nose, whether they have a deviated septum or whatever. 
Um, but I would recommend it if you do find yourself mouth breathing, search up, look at the research, look at Huberman's podcast. And at least if, if anything, it's basically natural plastic surgery where it in shapes your face a lot better than it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, um, that was, uh, I had never heard. Thank you for introducing me to that. It's really cool. I also think I'm, I was super excited that you were, you, the a couple other things that you're, um, that are, are essentially free are, um, cold showers, like cold oh, yeah. water and oh, yeah. cold exposure has a lot of, a lot of great benefit from everything from like your, um, immune system to, uh, your hormone levels to, yeah. um, I mean, it's like, but I, I, I mean, I always know about cold water. It's just like the, it is not easy though, just to, cause you, for most of us in this country, we are so lucky we can wow. dial the setting to whatever we want and to actually dial that all the way down is not an easy thing to do. So how did you, how did you, how did you make the switch to cold? The cold uh, it's rough. I mean, uh, I, I will say there, there's points in time where, I just really don't want to, like, I really don't want to. You do it every day or? I, I try to do it every day. Um, every day cold shower. Yeah, I try to that do it. That is discipline. It is. It's tough. It's really hard. I will say that I have been getting better recently at it. The time when it's really hard is when it's naturally already cold. Like if it's in the middle of winter, and this is the benefit of being in California where it's not super cold, but yeah. at least this year in California was a little bit rougher for, for us. Yeah, it was a um, super rainy, yeah. cold winter. Um, but it's like when it is actually cold and you get up and you're already pretty cold and it's not like it's ambiently pretty warm, then doing the cold shower is really, really tough. I will oh, say yeah. the times when I don't do it is like if I have a cold, if I'm sick, like don't do a cold shower. Just don't get yourself worse. But I think for me, it's um, I ended up I end up working. I also work out every day and I'm a morning shower person. So I think cold, cold exposure in the morning is the really important thing because it sets in good parts of your circadian rhythm. It sets in a lot of hormone levels like you were talking about. It boosts your dopamine, serotonin. Again, this is all me talking Huberman stuff. So I'm gonna shout out to him and shout out to that podcast. Um, but it really helps you set in stone a lot of things that I think evolutionarily, if you think about it, every time that we used to immerse ourselves in water was never really heated water Yeah. out the massive and it's only something of the last maybe 100 plus years where we've had the ability at the to, to warm up water like that and then use it at a regulated temperature because i mean more than that ago if you boiled water you're not going to toss boiling water on yourself yeah so evolutionarily it's been something that we always were used to and we're good with and i think that's why cold plunges like the tubs themselves that's that's one long-term investment eventually if i if i ended up having cash that i'm, I'm gonna actually invest in um a cold plunge pool yeah, so a little yeah. a little uh, cold tub or whatever, but cold showers do the trick as well. Um, and what's actually the thing is once you beat the first two, three days, four days of it, you realize kinda... the first like five, 10 seconds sucks because you have to like, you breathe really fast, you have to slow your breathing, but you end up realizing you don't feel so cold. And that the reason behind that is that um, inside your body, it recognizes that you're cold on the surface. So it regulates your internal temperature to keep you warm. So you end up realizing that you just end up waking up better, your muscle activation, it's really good for recovery. So, I mean, that's why a lot of athletes will use cryo, will use um, cold packs, will use ice constantly because it helps rebuild and strengthen your muscles. And there's just so many benefits of it. Um, I think especially for those of us who are going to be in professions that allow, that make us like sit, sit in places for long times, 
um, I think it's a pretty critical addition to the to the routine. Are you doing the cold water before you do your workout? Yeah, like so I do. I try to do. So I do my cold shower in the morning, and then when I do my workout, I um, I I try to cold shower again after. Okay. So walk me through like a typical day, I guess, uh, or maybe what's what's I don't know. Typical day prior to graduation. Do you do, would you wake up with a cup of coffee or do you? So that's one thing that's interesting for me. I have never gotten on the caffeine trail. I will get eventually. I recognize that med school is going to smoke me and I will get need caffeine. You don't have to. I've somehow gotten through at this point. You got so through so far. Yeah. So I've done pretty well with it. Um, typical day. It depends on obviously the work time, but I will say like if I went into what I typically do, uh, wake up is around seven. Maybe if, if, if I can't get in my workout, I, I, I try to work out as much as I can. Um, yeah. What are you I, normally doing? Are you running or, um, I'm, I'm less of a big runner. I've had some like plantar, like plantar fasciitis issues over the past like year and a half and those lead to shin splints and things. So I've, I've stayed off running a little bit, but I try to get in the gym as much as I can when I get to the gym, some, the cardio like weights and cardio. Yeah. So I, on like what you call a push pull split. So I try to get all the muscle groups in basketball is a really good way for me as well to keep the cardio up and also to not feel like I'm working out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's fun. So I, I, I do a lot of that as well. Um, but typically, typically my workouts aren't the first thing I do. That is one thing I want have wanted to institute, but the, I think the flip side challenge of it is I'm really good late. I'm a really good late night studier. So it doesn't really, you're just going to be cutting your sleep too short if you're studying at like 11, 12, one, and then you have to wake up by five to yeah. work. It's just, you want to optimize sleep too. Sleep. That's um, what I, sleep is so important but, in med school. Well, so, it's always important, but yeah, more, more so than ever. Um, uh, but typical day will start around seven. Um, I will, I'm, I'm generally not a big breakfast person. Um, so I try to do a lot more on like just protein shakes and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it's quick. It helps me get through stuff and I will, uh, I'll often have work. I'm, I'm, I'm most efficient work wise around nine to like one. And then my energy levels drops off. That's typically when I try to actually hit the gym, yeah. um, is like right after lunch or right before lunch. So I typically eat a later lunch, maybe like two or three. Um, and I try to hit it right before. So I'm hitting it when I'm still in a fasting state. I get all that energy out and then I'm able to replenish pretty quickly. Um, and I do f tend to find that my mental acuity kind of drops a little bit then. So for me, getting physically active is a really good way to, to pep that back up. Well, yeah, that was one of the best advices I ever got with in medical school was my physiology professor. He and I were talking about, I was just like, how, how am I going to get all this studying in? And it was typically around seven, eight, maybe 9 PM, something like that. I would, hit this point is probably usually around 9 9 p.m and i was just like i am like dead i'm you know i'm like i'm and i'm like he he would say go get on the treadmill for 20 minutes and what that does is that it gives you an a natural boost of catecholamines yeah so when you get a natural boost of catecholamines from working out it's a central stimulant, which is different than coffee, which is coffee is a peripheral stimulant. So it like wakes your body up, but you're not like centrally yeah. awake. Yeah. So it's almost like you're, if you're pre-med or you're in medical school, it's almost absolutely essential that you have some type of a 20 minute 
all right, I'm going to get on that stationary bike or something like don't reach for that late night coffee because that is going the, you know, I don't, I forgot what the half-life of the caffeine molecule is, but it's like, wait, it's way, way, way too long. Yeah. You're going to mess your sleep up. Yeah. What you have to do is you have to add, you have to bring exercise in. Maybe you get one big workout, like kind of like what you're saying, noon or one or something like that. And then you have your little bonus workout where I'm like, okay, I've yeah. I got nothing left. It's 9 PM. I need to study for three more hours. So I will go do my little 20 minute thing. Yeah. So yeah. it sounds like you're already doing that. That's well to somewhat, I, I will want to stay. I want to, I want to stay stuck in with those things. I think for me, I'm, I'm quite a, I'm generally an extrovert as well. I like being socially engaged. Thankfully, a lot of the work that I do is also involves other people, whether it's mm-hmm. running a company or, or things like that. There's a lot of interaction with other individuals. The research I did was very team collaborative. Yeah. Um, there's very few things that I do that are just purely myself in terms of activities, obviously studying is studying. Um, so I end up doing a lot what I end up finding is I end up doing a lot more of that social interaction and af- late afternoon evening ports where I think generally people are more free. Um, and I, I'm able to lock in again, mental like work wise coming back from things. Um, I think it's very person to person to figure out the type of study or the type of person you are in terms of like, how you approach things. I, I, I'm pretty good at sprinting, meaning like if I need to, I can work for like nine, 10 hours at a stretch. Um, and if I need to, I need to do that. But I do find that I think the things that are non-negotiable for me are this, like a decent amount of sleep. Um, a decent amount again is contingent on the time. Sometimes a decent amount is five hours. Sometimes a decent amount is eight hours. Uh, but it's the sleep, it's the, it's the eating right. So eating a lot of greens, I'm vegetarian. So I've always kind of had that at least side of it. Um, and, but because of being vegetarian, I need to get enough protein because I work out a lot. So I think those are kind of my non-negotiables. And if I need to sprint, go crazy studying because I've been two days or something like that. Do you put a protein powder into your smoothie then? Yeah. So I, or um, I do whey. I do whey protein isolate though. So it's the, slightly different than whey, whey comes from cows though, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not vegan. I'm vegetarian, You're, uh, which but, is, which is pretty helpful. Can you be vegetarian and still eat, uh, like the whey protein or. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the whole idea of the vegetarian vegan line is like the pro like animal based products, um, as opposed to like the animal themselves. So like, I'm okay with eating eggs. eggs oh, like, so you can be vegetarian. So vegetarian doesn't necessarily mean like you can still be vegetarian and, and have whey. Yes. Protein yes. Nicely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like yeah. I can have milk, I can have cheese, I can have like egg. Okay. Yeah. But, um, vegan is, vegan is a lot tougher. I, I do. I did vegan for two years, man. It was tough. Vegan's and, tough. Uh, like as a vegetarian, vegan's tough. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, for me, I think the non-negotiables are are the the protein intake because that's pretty critical. The trying to work out, I have found for myself like um, whether it's coming off of like whether because I physically can't work out because I had surgeries or whatever. Like the times that I've had an inability to to get physically active, mental health goes to the ground. My my ability to work goes. It just it just doesn't. And I think if you look at the science, it's just so supported. Um, that physical activity is so significant. And I think we try to supplement it with a lot of other things, whether it's intake, but just getting out there, doing something, keeping your body relatively in shape is. Yeah, uh, we were, I think we were, we were, we evolved 
and there was like a really cool book that uh forgot what it was but it was we're like a running species we are yeah. we just like evolved to be moving our bodies not i mean that's one thing i as much as i love working in the hospital it's like it is tough to have a full day of standing and sitting under <laughs> fluorescent lights yeah yeah that would be like that would be my maybe that would be my dream is could we could we practice medicine like outside i mean outdoor medicine, yeah. <laughs> hey there's your wilderness medicine huh yeah yeah i mean that's like what um i mean there's so many like important things that we can control when we are inside but maybe we just there is something about maybe we can have a clinic outside clinic you don't really need like in the or you know we need basically you've got to have it has to be perfectly ventilated yeah, you've got to be sterile. able to protect your sterile field um you got to have your lights everything has to, you can't have any wind but maybe we could have like maybe we could have like outdoor clinics i don't know probably yeah. can't do that in minnesota and january oh, no. <laughs> nope nope um yeah so well that's what just routine things yeah what um what what do you think would be cool to have in medicine in like 50 years from now like what do you see is i mean i see i i see something where we've somewhat separated finances from medicine in healthy ways but i also see like a lot more out outside time but what what do you think what do you see in yeah I'm, I, so I, what's I, the world going to look like in 50 years that's that's the, the brilliant question um i have a lot of i so by trade I, I will say by trade i'd say by nature i'm a little bit an idealist but i'm an idealist with like realism etched all over it i will say um i i i do think that I think medicine specifically in 50 years is going to be completely shifted by um, technologicals, either replacement solutions or complementary solutions. What I mean by that is AI. Um, I think really that's going to be what dominates the space. We, I think for, for those of us who are non, uh, I mean, everyone knows of chat GPT. That's like obvious. Yeah. But for, for those at least pre-med listeners or people who are not super technical, I, one of the benefits that I have growing up in the Bay Area and having every, my brother's a coder, I have like tons of technical, at least exposure, is that I know actually how, like I, I know decently how legitimate this information is as a technical layman, like a, a, a technology layman person. Um, and it's actually quite impressive. Impressive and scary, but impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and... I have never, I mean, I, there's a lot of discussion, at least from my parents' generation stuff, talking about fears of privacy and things. And I think a lot of our generation, at least Gen Z knows that like, look, Instagram has everything that they want to know on me already. I'm not stopping them from it. I think there's kind of been that general admission, but I think this is the first time that I've had a little bit of that, like, holy wow, uh, yeah. for technology. Uh, simply because like GBT was thrown out, what, eight months ago? And the hyper iteration yeah. on it has been psychotic. Like every two weeks there's a new language model coming out and every two weeks it's a new integration of some ai model and it, it was just the first mover that the moment they tipped the scales and forgot the quote-unquote ethical question everyone follows now you have the monsters of google and apple and who are all rolling out their ai tools effectively and uh and photoshop and yeah everything. everybody it's uh everyone is rolling it out and and the hyper iteration that is existing just from having the technology democratized and accessible 
is incredible. Like the speed by which it's changing and growing mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, I, I saw there, there's a mode of GPT that is nicknamed God mode, if anyone wants to search it up, which basically some of the restrictions are pulled back. And there was a, there was a, a, a kind of a team that were doing a presentation. They were talking about it uh, to like a keynote audience where they just basically had God mode fully build a legal brief that they said, hey, this is my legal case. What do I do? And it builds the full brief, all the precedent cases. What is the approach? Where do you start first? Where are the potential counter arguments? And it wasn't like foolproof, like the best lawyers in the world could probably be like, okay, I'll still find the thing, but that's first iteration. This is eight months after it was invented. So we can only imagine what it's going to look like. I think at least from the medical level, um, how medicine is going to be shaped. the, The predominant questions we have moving forward are a lot of the questions we have now, which is how do we simultaneously protect patient privacy, prioritize the the values of health being a very personal kind of venture, which are super critical to our medical ethos right now. How do we take that at the same time, take advantage of big data approaches where you need a lot of information accessible at scale? Um, How do you complement a potential AI tool being able to spit out a diagnosis based on image recognition? So let's Mm -hmm. say you have a lesion on your hand or you have a little you have like, let's say a dermatological thing on your forearm and you just snap a camera photo and you run it through image recognition and AI could probably spit out what exactly that is, what are the different markers, what are follow-up tests you need to have and send you a prescription. But what are you missing from all of that is the human side of it. So I think the reality for medicine is what we provide and as, as physicians is the ability to actually connect and support a patient and give hope and give emotional side. And I, I think that 10 years from now, 50 years from now, the question is going to be, how do we integrate said tools while protecting patients, protecting their privacy, protecting their outcomes, but also being a complement and not purely a replacement? Right. I mean, I think that's, that's it. That's what you said. Um, I mean, the operative word there is tool. It's like th- this uh, technology can re- replace some jobs. Again. Um, but I'm I'm thinking we need to look at it as how can we use this as tools? Um, well, what do you think? How would, let's say there's someone like me, um, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm almost 50. I'm in medicine. I'm not keeping up on this stuff. How does mm-hmm. somebody like me start to learn about, about AI? And what are some ways that I could use it to I don't know, maybe not necessarily benefit because what I do in medicine is very like I am in the moment with mm-hmm. doing like I physically do things. And that's what's cool about what I do is it's like we haven't I'm not, I'm not really going to be using AI like anytime soon. Yeah. Oh, well, but I mean, I'm sure there are going to be ways for me, but it yeah. I'm just I guess that's my question is how maybe on the on the in the moment to moment basis, someone like me or an ICU deck, how would we use AI? And then how, how can I start using AI to start improving medicine? Yeah. When I'm, but I, again, I'm like, I'm, this is new technology for me. So I'm not, you know, all I do right now is just sort of like put things into chat GPT. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that would be where I'd start. Um, I think in medicine, the, the, the big barrier right now is regulation. Right. It's going to be, it's going to continue to be the big barrier, which is not necessarily a good or bad barrier. It is the barrier. It's just the roadblock that exists. And I simply say that from the place that 
there are going to be so many tools that people will suggest in the broader scheme. Oh, this could help medicine. The point is, are we ready to let it touch patient information? Yeah. Um, that's the key question. I think the lowest hanging fruit is scribing. I think that's the lowest yeah. hanging fruit. And well, that's, that's confidential. I that's mean, balanced. there's going to be confidential info. 100%. And that's, I think the lowest hanging fruit, when we're thinking about a lot of the GPT and things like that, they're language models. That's really what they are. Um, I think some of the, the general discourse that was out maybe five years ago was talking about like robotics replacing surgeons. Yeah. And I think now it's, and everyone was like, oh, if anything, the doctor that would be replaced is the surgeon because the robot can do more fine motor skills. Like, okay. But I think now that language has shifted a little bit to say, okay, no, we're actually very ahead on the language side. And I think with a lot of developments being in language models in things like GPT, I mean, you can have a full conversation. When I was struggling for medical schools, I asked GPT to pick my med school. It didn't do it for me, but at least yeah. we went through a number of things. Yeah. Um, I asked it to try to write a couple chapters for me and yeah. write some songs and, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not fun. doing, it it's not necessarily doing a good job, but it's like, it actually yeah. is sort of like allowing me to learn, like I can learn from what it's doing. And it's when it does a bad job, I'm like, okay, like I see what you did there. That's not good enough. Then it's yeah. sort of like, I don't really feel like I, I'm still kind of like on a one-to-one -one mm -hmm. basis. I haven't really figured out how to like sort of scale my my human labor, my effort. Yeah, and I think that's only going to happen with the integration of tools. And I'll give an example after it, but I'll close up on the healthcare concept. I think the, 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 what it seems, at least from a technical level, what seems like one of the most apt applications right now is just shortening charting times. We talk about how a lot of doctors, especially like medical, like who are in clinic, like oncologists as a good example, spend so much time charting charting oh my god and yeah. you chart and you chart and you chart and yes emrs but if anything emrs has made it easier to integrate with the tools so if we're thinking about um i mean radiologists already use this in a pseudo level where they're like okay macro five and it already outputs like an example of what a liver report would look like and then they fill in the blanks that yeah. is going to be made even more efficient when you're talking about these models because all you can say is hey gpt or whatever the medical equivalent is is going to be hey i'm um uh, according to the imaging and you can take a look to val and you can tell GPT like, Hey, take a look to validate what I'm thinking. But I think we're just going to have to write up a report about the fact that this has an, a plural effusion and then it just goes for it. Um, and I think that's the efficiency, but there's the challenge of patient privacy. So a lot of the innovation that needs to happen in the space is not only innovation from a purely technical standpoint, it's innovation in figuring out how to simplify, protect, go crazy on data protection and privacy, but also to communicate. Um, and this is where I think the challenge is really significant because as medical people, we're, we're laymen in the computer science space or yeah. in technical coding space. The problem is right now, and, and, and this happens, this is happening with our current politicians is there's such a gap in just technical understanding between what the regulators and the politicians who are passing potential legislation to control said tools versus those who actually develop it and who know actually the actual capability. And I think that is the big thing that we need to figure out sooner rather than later. Um, because if anything, it's gonna prevent us from making missteps, which is how do we as a medical leadership or as policymakers or as leaders of hospitals or hospital administrators who are making the calls whether to integrate AI, how well can we understand the technology so we understand the potential pitfalls and the potential uses. And I think that that communication is something I'm actually pretty interested in. 
um, talking about the entrepreneurship space or talking about making business decisions for hospitals is uh, how, how do we get to the place that not just our doctors, but our administrators, our politicians, our regulators know what this technology is and know where it can really help us and know where it can hurt us. Because the last thing we want is patient privacy being unneedingly uh, accessible by some AI tool that is helping someone do like a random like study from home. And then all of a sudden they have a bunch of patient information show up. Yeah. That well, is this is, I mean, this is kind of a good segue into sort of like, um, what are the negative, what, 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 what might be we looking at? There's a lot of doomsday talk about AI, by the way, like there's, if you start to talk about weaponization and, yeah. you know, the super intelligence, I mean, you're, you've, you've been thinking about this stuff. What are your thoughts on sort of like some of the doom doomsday type of thing? Like if AI is able to achieve the, um, I, is it called super intelligence? I forgot what it's called. That's where it basically it's just able to learn at an exponential rate on its own and sort of like essentially just take over and do its own thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say my, my foremost thing that I'm going to give on this is I'm far from the expert here. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not the person to be able to dictate these things, but I, I mean, I, I've wrote, we've read what the ex, but the guys that are the experts right? are kind of like, Whoa, like put the brakes on. I mean, the experts inherently also will disagree, which is the, the beauty, but also the scary part. Like, uh, like, I mean, the most pol one of the most polarizing figures, but if there's anything Elon Musk has been scarily opposed to, it's and AI. reaching is AI. And yeah. is there a utility and probably one of the smartest people alive? Yeah. Um, that being said, we have to think about a lot of opinions. I will say personally, I'm just less scared of the doomsday stuff because it's just uh, how tangible it is right now is just is quite far. But I do think there are there are just like there's there's earlier dominoes to fall that can be not as catastrophic but quite catastrophic to how we live um and i bring up the patient privacy one as a good example because at least within medicine that's a that's a very held value it's very yeah, also it's it's very relevant because it does seem like this is we're going to deal with this like right now it's not like and it's close and not it's close. like the uh, terminator movie where the cyborgs yeah. are like or matrix where we built that's we're not, maybe we're not there yet, but we're like, we are dealing with patient privacy already. Yeah. We're, we're already tackling these issues. I mean, we're, we're thinking about, I mean, even before GPT and all these like mass accessible AI models, even the democratization of AI tools was around the concepts we were already talking about is okay. We, we know we can use machine learning. We know we can use big data models. We know we can like from a technical standpoint, we can, but where can we do that on the medical research side by, while protecting patient privacy? That's why there's been so much about like, uh, at least the cancer space is a really good example. I did a lot of cancer research when I was an undergrad and a lot of like the computational side of it was like using nationally held databases where consortiums were built around all these different clinics and doctors and hospitals providing information that you can't use to necessarily identify a patient, but is broadly accessible to the space such that uh, a pancreatic cancer researcher in the Czech Republic can access this information and run their statistical models and their machine learning models to potentially say, hey, is there a biomarker somewhere? Like those are approaches that we've already been tackling and trying to figure out how do we use that data at scale. Now it's become 10 times more confusing because not only are we gonna use the AI tools on the research side of it, 
there's just so much potential to make medicine more efficient and better from an actual patient care standpoint that we have to figure out how to integrate on both sides. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Let's say best case scenario, we we accomplish all this. And let's say, fast forward, I'm like 120 years old. <laughs> You're like, I don't know, 95 or I, I don't something like that. And, um, and everybody who is doing, I guess, what they had trained to do now doesn't have to do what then do what then do humans do with our days? Like you don't, let's say I don't need to go into the office and diagnose. I don't need to be an anesthesiologist. Like what, what will, what are going to, so, I mean, there will be some early dominoes that will fall and there's going to be, I talked to a friend of mine who's doing something that's very much like this sort of data and putting out content. Um, and she's just like, I, I could see already how I'm just not going to have a job. Yeah. But at, at a big scale, like what then is, what do we do with our lives then? <laughs> that, is, that is a great question. I, I, I wish I had the, the guts also, like the, I wish I had the foresight to be able to say where our, our efforts would shift as humans. But I also wish I had the guts to be able to ask that question to myself because I don't. And it's simply because that like the whole workforce is different. Like what we think is critical to run and, and I mean, let, let's go outside of medicine for a second. Like even the most low hanging, like like a like an accountant. There's that that's that's a change that can happen very soon. That no accountant is immediately. I, yeah, that, that, I mean, if if we t I, if we I did if, TurboTax was I did TurboTax this year, and it was incredible. Yeah, everything. And that's a tool that's been. I, I let it log right? into my, all my accounts. Yeah, it was incredible, and I like basically. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to say any more about it, except that I would say it, that I did my own taxes for the first time ever. And it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I learned so much. Exactly. And this is a tool that's been available. So what what's holding it back right now from, and, and I think the language has historically been, oh, robotics are going to replace what they call lower skilled. I hate that term, but it's going to be like more blue collar workers, like factory workers, things like that. That's been happening. But now we're at a point where like, I talked about the legal brief concept. There's no lawyer that's going to be able to compete with right. an AI tool that can pull every precedent, every precedent, every single logical human argument that can figure out the true interpretation of the law based upon the different applications and or, random courts or the skin lesion example. Yeah. You, the dermatological, like take, I need a video of my, take a screenshot, take a shot of a video of my yeah. skin lesion. Yeah, and the, I mean, speaking of the the image Biopsy. side, of it, like there was a there was a there was a video that went viral on Twitter that I saw like a month ago, and it was it was a computer scientist, but he was also like a big workout gym guy, and he adapted an AI tool uh, to help him with his like nutrition personal training. And so he writes into the AI tool, and he's like, um, I, he's like, hey, I want to lose fifteen pounds over the next three months. I got a uh, I got a beach trip coming up, so I want to like optimized for like abs and abdominal side. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do a lot of physical activity. Um, and then he opens his fridge and then he's like, Hey, here's what, check what I have out. So he puts his phone up, his phone is linked to his computer and he just scans his camera across the entire fridge. 
And in like, it's not even like he's taking photos of everything. It maybe it takes five seconds, just waves it across. And what you're seeing on the computer screen is a bunch of little squares, like rectangles. And it's identifying everything that it's seeing. And then it says, hey, can you build me a nutritional plan based upon what I already have in my fridge, the types of foods I would like based upon what I have in my fridge? And what should I do workout-wise to achieve my goal in the next uh, month and a half? Processing for like a second and a half, it says, hey, based upon this thing, I think this is the diet you should follow. Here are the potential recipes based on the items I identified. Here are similar items and their cost at the local supermarket. Here's what you should be doing for your workout. No That's personal amazing. trainer or nutritionist ever needed again. Even he, he was able to even put a video into that? No, it's image recognition. Yeah, and that's that's the point where you just link his phone. Show I didn't his even camera. know that. I didn't know that's go. I don't even know what that's through. Is that through Google or something? Or? No. So I mean, this is everyone's again. This is what I was talking about the hyper iteration concept, where people are combining other tools of like like image recognition is is a quite simple tool that we've used for a good amount of time, which is like yeah. can you show can you show an object to a camera on a machine for it. So, oh, so the, the, he figured out a way to use the image recognition and then convert that to the language model. Yep. The language well, model then. Combine it with the language model. And then it spits out his workout regimen. How it spit out based upon what he has in his fridge, what he should cook for the next couple of days. Yeah. What, and, and then if you start really, I was just sitting down one day, like thinking about it, I'm like, okay, what if you connect that to a smart fridge that connects to your Apple car, like that Apple's coming out with a car that is self-driving in an AI model. And the smart fridge knows every time you put something in, it's able to document everything. It tells the car, hey, in a week, we're going to have to go and buy all these groceries that can you plan to wake the user up or, uh, or send him an alarm 30 minutes before his work ends that today he's going to have to go get groceries and you automatically drive him to Walmart and there's an automatic checkout at a curbside pickup waiting with all his groceries. The efficiency you save time. time. Is massive the efficiency is crazy so if you just think about these integrative tools the big barrier to all of them being just technically shot after is the regulation and it is what are we willing to let it touch yeah. and my fear my my challenge and also what i think is exciting too is that that the prospect of what i just described is scary for a lot of people but it also improves efficiency through a massive degree where you, you can you can eat healthier, you can work out better, you can do these things. When does it get to a point that we are now taking away from what humans should actually be doing? And I don't know the answer to that, not in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, I, my only comment is that what we enjoy is we enjoy being creative, we enjoy playing music, painting, yeah. making art, exercising, spending time together, having a beer, um, yep. listening to a symphony. Um, my idea for the future would be that we, we will have more time to enjoy the things that humans like to enjoy. Yep. And I think what we're, we'll have to do is have to figure out a way for people to not be so like living paycheck to paycheck with the money thing because money is actually like we are people are hurting yeah big time right now because massive inflation like just if you look at the price of milk and eggs and housing in california is insane but yeah. i mean i think you're i i would i've been what i've been wanting to uh i know this um best-selling author um and psychologist rick hansen i was thinking about getting him on the podcast and asking him if we should teach compassion and kindness to AI because I don't think anybody's doing that right now. I think it's, 
uh it's right now it's kind of like yes there's a lot of good people in the space and we're, we're doing really great things but it's happening so fast fast do, do we need to teach this do we need to teach um these other important things compassion kindness generosity and, and and it's and it's scary because like that that's an ethical question really and that ethical question has been the ho- the hold up for why these tools haven't been consumer accessible all it takes though is for one mover which is what open ai did open AI. And they're bad a good thing it just it happened where they released gpt obviously open ai is a microsoft backed company um or initiative and the moment they dropped it now every other and this is this is market forces you can't just sit idly by everyone drops their own thing um and then iteration goes crazy and it shows that no matter what ethical questions we have and these are these were the exact ethical quandaries that we were we were debating for a long time which are actually valid questions which is like hey what are is this good for us are we just going to kill the livelihood because if there's anything that ai is actually doing is it's going to create worse income inequality in a little bit because there is going to be people just out of jobs because why do you need a human to make to do a lot of time be iterative do grunt work you don't need them to um and i think the 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 inequality side of it was one thing i was discussing with my brother who is he's a computer scientist and he works like on a side apart from his job he does a lot of side projects with language models and things like that and he was like yeah that's one thing i just don't I can't wrap my head around yet about like, what is this going to do for, we talk about widening income inequality. We talk about an upper lower class, but now we're, the dimensions are shifted. We're not just looking on a socioeconomic gradient based upon certain profession types. Now there's going to be skilled professions, which are conventionally viewed as high paying that are also not as useful. Like accountants is a great example. Lawyers, great example. Um, We're just going to be dealing with a different form of inequality that may make the current inequality worse or may just create a whole new system. Um, and that's all going to come down to where does the tool do what, what does the tool do better than the human? And I, yeah. Wow. It's pretty deep. I wonder if that's a good place to, to wrap it up. It'll, it'll be fun. I mean, I mean, I think I, I would love to end it off on a little bit of a lighter note because I know we, I, I love the conversation. Talk. Well, I, yeah, I mean, are you kind of like, I, I ha- I was asking all the questions and getting into what yeah. do you, I mean do you yeah, I, I hope it wasn't too quid pro quo but do you oh, no, I love it I love it what I, kind of do what kind of uh, wrap up que- or any questions would, for me about because I think most of our listeners obviously are going to be like students or pre med students and things yeah um, doctors too yeah, doctors as well I think yeah what do you want to for you as as a mentor as someone who's done medical missions who's seen international medicine wilderness medicine and or like you've seen the continuum of medicine who's struggled in medicine who's gone to the most elite residency programs like you've seen so much of it just it being the medical infrastructure um when you approach mentorship now for students what is the kind of one two three things that at least value or quality wise that you wish that they have or things that they can work on um, what do you feel like are the most important things for students like either me or younger than me or older than me to really take and run with in medicine? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think that I think we had already kind of like hit on it, but it's this idea of 
of enjoying the sort of the it's the it's really a, a process and not so much just like this end goal um and i think the process actually will will sort of teach you that it will beat you down when you do it wrong like if it's all about grades and stuff you're going to be so stressed out and you're going to realize that's it's not really all about that you eventually have to achieve balance but i do think that um I think learning about being kind of kind to ourselves um, because we, when we make mistakes in medicine and we do make mistakes and a lot of times, sometimes we don't even make mistakes. We do everything right, but people die. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really hard. Um, so whether or not you, and it almost automatically happens that you feel like you didn't do something right. So whether you did or you didn't, whether it's your fault or not your fault, it's like you still feel, you feel terrible when there's a bad outcome that is going to happen to everybody that's in that gets in healthcare eventually i think those there are little lessons that are happening early on where where we getting we get it we get it wrong we get it wrong where we are not doing a good job preparing people for these failures it's kind of like a d in organic chemistry is not even it's like that it's an unheard of you can't you can't have we can't have anything less than like a 4.0 we can't have there's like grade inflation like more like i that wasn't really a, a term in in the 90s but there's just like it just seems like there's very like very little opportunity for mistakes but mistakes are going to happen in the in in the real world and they're going to be huge things so I think learning how to be very, very kind to ourselves um, when th things are just not going to go well. Um, so I would say that's 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 one thing. Um, another thing is that you can always, I think, I believe that you can always change. And you, let's say you don't know what you want to do. I think that's a healthy thing. And I think you can say that and you can do that. And I, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't rush. I wouldn't want anyone to rush into medical school. You've got such a long time to practice medicine. So a lot of people feel like they're in a, a, a rush. Like it, they are so, so stressed. And it's just like, got to get all this stuff done. Got to get my shadowing done. Got to get the MCAT. Got all That's a lot to do you know, by the, and then to basically be able to go seamlessly from senior year right into medical school and have all that done and do, I mean, it's a, it's a lot. And I, I just don't think that that should really be rushed. I think that, um, I think what I did was, was pretty good. It was, I mean, I, I would have gone, I probably would have gone immediately had I gotten in. It was sort of, I was forced to take yeah. three gap years, yeah. but, um, if you think about like your whole life, I would say you're going to get and you want to include like the whole thing. You include this whole like everything that you do starting day one of medical school all the way until like you, you know, until the day that you die. You really get to actually be a health advocate. You even get to start doing it like you and all of your colleagues and even anybody that's an undergrad or even in high school or already can be a health advocate. So you have to kind of see this long-term game. Like I get to be this person that impacts people's health on a long scale. 
and there's and really there's just like there's absolutely no rush if whether you get if you want to be a a neurosurgeon there's not a whole lot of difference between being a neurosurgeon for i would say maybe 40 years versus 37 years i guess in the long the long term it's like to me that kind of sounds like the same thing but i think there's a big difference between if you're 23 and you're a first year medical student versus you're 20, 26, I think those three years, of, uh, most people are probably not going to have a family. I, I would say those are really, really important years. And I would just, I would like people to just take a breath and, you know, relax a little bit. Like you don't have to get it all done. Really, it's not, it's not, it's, it, it feels like a race. It's like when I, I felt like a race to me. It's kind of like, I've got to make it to this next step. What I'd like people to take away is that it, it shouldn't really be like that. Like life is happening right now, you know, yeah. and we all, we are so eager to get to that next. I've got to get that. I've got to get in because life doesn't start until I get in. And that's, I don't know, I guess that's just not the case. So yeah. how do, what do we do about that? I mean, I, I would say it's really about focusing on the present and trying to be grateful for what we have right now like don't worry about rushing that next big step it's gonna it's gonna happen like you i pretty much you can have almost anything most most people can have a lot of things they want in life this younger generation younger generations can have so many things that they want almost everything that they want but not all at once so there's a there's a a, i think trying to be patient so that would be um, another thing about not rushing too. I would say not rushing is important because it's like, I, I kind of rushed it in some ways I rushed it. It was all about, I focused so much on the grades, focused so much on the testing and stuff. And then I just was so confused about now I don't even know what it is that I want to do. So I think taking your time. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know. I'm not sure if that, those are two big ones. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. So- self-care personal finance all that stuff but i mean life is meant to be enjoyed really you know so i do feel my heart goes out to everybody who is working working so hard and then they're just like they're actually not enjoying like the 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 grind it's because it's like it's it's it kind of sucks to be like i to feel like you're just it's all about this like payday, this distant payday. Um, and then what we find out is this is like, holy crap. You know, like my man, my first first couple months as an intern, I was a doctor, I had the white coat. It's like dream come true. It was rough, dude. And I was kind of like, why did I do this? I was getting called names and all this stuff. So it's like you got to enjoy, like try to enjoy a little piece of it every day, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you have these big moments like you just had a big peak. That's a peak life moment. Yeah. where you're like you got that acceptance letter that's a peak life moment and then you know savor that but then savor like the little moments too like yeah. i don't have to work whatever i'm not working this weekend you know yeah. great and um i'm happy my body is you know working and i can go for a swim or something like that so, mm. yeah i don't know if that's what is that kind of like what you're no that's uh, exactly what i was like i mean i Again, we, we can all get caught up. There's a lot of, we talked a lot about a big things, a lot of like technical concepts. I think, I mean, 
in the end, if, if there's any solace for students is like, I I'm spending the next couple months trying to do the least amount possible. So just enjoy. Yeah. I, I drove an ice cream truck, uh, like the month before, <laughs> before that's I, incredible. That's I was just like, I'm like, I'm, all right. I'm like, let's do so. I was like, let's do some weird stuff. You know, that's, what's really neat is like, take the pressure off. I'm like, I got in, I'm starting in a month. I just, I went, I'm like, I want to, you know, yeah, was, my, uh, uh, my, my girlfriend is traveling right now and um, I am babysitting her cat as well as my own cat. So I oh, spent yeah, yeah. learning how to take care of a, Yeah, cool. I'm spending most of my day running around the house trying to make sure two cats don't like fight. So like the like simple things and, and it, you don't, I think there's, I, I know time and place for everything. And this is also helping me self-reflect and there's a lot of nerves, at least at my stage. Okay, ready to start a new stage. Part of me just wants to start tomorrow. Part of me is like, oh, I'm gonna latch on to the last bit of freedom I have for the next, I don't know, 10 years, whatever. Um, but just know that the more that you read, the more that you just enjoy things, um, and the more you, I think for students, the more you expend your energy on things that actually make you very excited about the world, you really can't go wrong. Because in an interview, if you're worried about med school and you're gonna be talking about it, the things that are gonna get you in the school school is you talking about a really cool bartending story that you had or a haircut that you gave or a um or, or a podcast episode that you had that's what's going to connect you with the people who are talking to you um because in the end yeah. they know that you're a human and uh you can relate to patients so and that's and that's a great that's a great point and by the way i will say this like just because um you're starting med school doesn't mean that you won't have freedom in 10 years i mean you <laughs> you always can take a break and a gap year it's always possible i know it feels like it but i mean um but it's definitely possible but hey thank you thank you so much sasha and it was it was awesome having you absolutely um, thanks dr Milik. yeah we'll definitely uh we should run this back at some point get a pick another three big topics at some point come yeah. back on i'll let you um get started with school and and yeah. uh and then when you come up for air let's yeah. uh we'll check in on that well yeah thank you so much and um i appreciate you having me on it was it was an absolute blast i know we talked about a lot of stuff and I'll, uh, it's always a pleasure i pre absolutely. appreciate you appreciate your time and and best of luck to you on a very um, exciting, not just first year and, and just change in your life, but also like a wonderful and very successful career. And appreciate it. Yeah. Good I'm luck. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll keep collaborating on things with more to come. So, yeah, thanks, Dr. Mulek. Appreciate your time. Information contained in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent any organization and are not intended as financial advice, diagnosis, treatment, or a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult a local physician or health care professional for your specific health care or medical needs or concerns.